We've come to a point where there are many Americans who are now looking with a sense of suspicion at those who call themselves Bible-believing evangelicals. They believe that what we teach is outdated and oppressive and even a form of bigotry. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Book of Romans, we move into Chapter 7 today in a message entitled, Released from the Law. This particular chapter of Romans really shows the heart of the Apostle Paul and in many ways is comforting to the Christian who might view Paul as some super-spiritual individual. Over the next few days, we'll see that Paul struggled with the same struggles we do and hopefully will be encouraged by the answers he gives to these struggles. I want to invite you this morning to take a Bible and turn to the book of Romans chapter 7. If you're joining us for the first time, you will be interested to know that about a year ago, we started our way through this great letter. And I really know of no other book in all the Bible that I suppose is more exacting, more demanding, more intensive, more challenging than the book of Romans. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what about the book of Revelation? Well, at least for me, the book of Revelation is not half as complicated as Romans. For me, Romans is one of the most mind-stretching, life-changing books in all of the New Testament. And when we started it over a year ago, I told you that if you can get a hold of the doctrines of the book of Romans, the whole of Scripture will open up to you. Now, don't forget that Romans was not written first and foremost to get the lost saved, though I suppose there have been more people saved through the book of Romans than through any other book in all of the New Testament. But it's written to saints who already are saved. In Romans 1 and verse 7, he speaks of to those who are beloved of God called as saints. That's to whom the letter is written. And it's a very equipping letter because if you can deeply understand the gospel, you'll be able to share it simply with those who are lost. But this book will also grow you up in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been studying with us in Romans, we've seen that there's a number of different portraits that God gives of man here in this book. In chapters one through three, we saw the lost man. His head is down, it is bowed, his mouth is closed. He stands guilty before God Almighty under the wrath of God. Then when we came to chapters four and five, we saw the justified man. His head is up, his lips are open. He's praising God because by the mercy of God, he has been declared righteous by his faith in the merits of Jesus Christ. In chapter six, it got even better. We saw the victorious man who's been released from the demands of his sin nature because he's begun to understand that the Lord Jesus not only dealt with the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. But when you come to chapter 7, you come to the wretched man. In fact, it's a self-portrait because Paul over 40 times uses the first person pronoun, I, me, or mine. And it seems rather inappropriate that the great apostle would describe himself in these terms. In fact, some people assume that he's describing someone else or possibly he's describing himself before he was genuinely converted. 
But as we will discover, Paul is describing himself as a saved individual. And he's describing the deep struggle that a Christian can have within. And he wants to remind us that sanctification is a process. And involved in that process sometimes is a very deep struggle. He wants us to learn the victory described in Romans 6 cannot be lived out unless we appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, but we do not typically do that until we first go through the struggle of Romans chapter 7. So he's preparing us for some tremendous lessons, and that's why I told you I don't want you to miss a single message in these six through eight chapters of Romans because each one is built upon another truth. Now, I want to begin by reading our text for today, and then I'm going to read the tail end of the chapter so you have an overview and a flow of where we're going in the weeks ahead, all right? Romans chapter 7, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, ask someone next to you if maybe they'll share one with you. Romans 7 now in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now since we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the latter. Now drop down to verse 14, if you will. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage of sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? So here in Romans 7, we're beginning a study on the unhappy Christian. Do you know that some Christians are unhappy? Listen again to the cry here in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Who said that? Paul said that. And he didn't say it before he was saved. He said it after he was saved. Wretched man that I am. Can you imagine a child of God saying that? Can you imagine someone who is born again calling themselves a wretched man? I can because I've said it. 
In fact, we're going to learn here in the seventh chapter that it is that cry that leads to genuine victory. And so the chapter ends with a word of hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. Now let's set the context. Many are new, and for the rest of us, my hope and desire is that by the time we're done with Romans, you'll be able to think your way chapter by chapter through the entire book. If you remember, there are three major divisions to the book. The first is doctrinal in chapters 1 through 8, where God's righteousness is revealed. In in that section, he shows us how it is that condemned people can become righteous in the sight of God. Chapters 9 through 11 is the national section. It deals with the people of Israel. God's righteousness is vindicated. He will show that he is a promise-keeping God, that the promises he made to Israel will indeed be kept because nothing can separate us from God's love. And then when we come to chapters 12 through 16, he will give us the practical section of the book of Romans. He will apply the great truths that we are studying. We saw that each section in turn divides into three sections. So in the doctrinal section, chapters one through eight, he highlights three key doctrines, the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification, and the doctrine of sanctification. So here in chapters six through eight, he's dealing with the doctrine of sanctification, namely that process by which God, after we are saved, makes us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. If you were here in the sixth chapter, we studied that we've been freed from our slavery to the old sin nature. Paul describes our old sin nature as defeated, as disabled, and as deprived. And so if we act on it, it's not because we have to, it's because we choose to. That our slavery is not mandatory, it's voluntary. And so in Romans 6, he took us to the graveyard that when Christ died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. And when he was resurrected, we were resurrected, that we too might walk in newness of life. But in chapter seven, he brings us to a wedding scene. In chapter seven, he opens a wedding album and you will see that your picture and my picture is there. In chapter six, we died with Christ. In chapter seven, we are married to Christ. In chapter 6, we are buried with Christ. In chapter 7, he pictures us as the bride of Christ. Now that brings us into the immediate context of chapter 7. In chapter 7, he describes the believer's relationship to the law. And considering the critics that we've already looked at in reference to the law in chapter 3 and then again in chapter 6, He feels under necessity by the inspiration of the Spirit of God that he once again needs to address these critics. If you remember, in chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, he said, we are not under law but under grace. Well, what did he mean by that? Does that mean that the law of God is meaningless for the Christian today? Can Christians just blow off God's commandments because we're saved? Does God's law have a continuing place in the life of the believer? And of course, his answer will be yes. Now, the issues that he deals with in the first century are very much alive in the 21st century. Now, during the 1960s through the 1990s, the seeds of the new morality were planted in the minds and hearts of Americans across this great land. And now we are reaping the fruit here in this new century. 
And so we've come to a point where there are many Americans who are now looking with a sense of suspicion at those who call themselves Bible-believing evangelicals. They believe that what we teach is outdated and oppressive and even a form of bigotry. And so we have government agencies in our government schools that are teaching our children the new morality. And if you don't believe it, find out what they're doing in our own county. It would shock some of you. They are teaching our children all kinds of deviant sexual behavior. Things practiced by pagans and perverts, all under the umbrella of sex education. And so they would say, well, under the new morality, the only commandment that we have is to love one another. And their definition of love is nothing more than a sentimental slosh with no boundaries, no parameters in which that love is to function. Apart from the secular realm in Christian circles, there is much confusion over the law of God. Some would say, based on Romans 6.14, when it says, you are not under law, but under grace. And when we come to chapter 10 and verse 4, he will say, Christ is the end of the law that any kind of expression of the Old Testament law today is legalism. And so if you talk about tithing or you talk about one day in seven that you should keep especially holy and set apart, they would say you are legalistic. Still, there are other Christians in their strict observance of the law. They try to carry it out under their own power. And they tend to measure their spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts and their performance is more outward than it is inward. And these Christians tend to become very critical, very unloving, very unforgiving. What I'm trying to say is that the issues we are discussing in the seventh chapter are very relevant for the day in which we find ourselves. Now, if you read through chapter seven over and over again, you will find that there are three principal divisions to the seventh chapter. First, this morning, we're going to deal with verses 1 through 6, and he will deal with the attitude of the legalist, the legalist who's in bondage to the law, who thinks that his acceptance before God is based on his obedience to the law. And in the New Testament, there are two kinds of legalists that are described. There is the non-Christian legalist who, by his deeds, tries to earn God's approval and hopes to merit heaven. Paul has blown that kind of thinking out of the water in chapters 3 through 5. But here in verses 1 through 6, he's dealing with the Christian legalist who understands that the law is good, but he tries to keep the law in his own power and in his own strength. And this is a person who fails to understand the plan of salvation and the role of the Holy Spirit in their life to carry out. And so this morning, we're going to talk about how we are released from the law, how God calls us to carry out the law, not in our own fleshly strength, but in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. In addition to the attitude of the legalist, when you come to verses 7 through 13, he deals with the attitude of the libertine. We've already discussed in the sixth chapter what is called antinomianism. And the antinomianist is against the law. We saw that's an important word that surfaced during the Reformation especially. 
because the Roman Catholic Church said of Luther and Calvin and Swingley and Melanchthon and other reformers who taught that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone, that works are just the proof and results of salvation, they accused them of antinomianism. Anti is the Greek word against, nomos is the Greek word for law. And so they said they were against the law, that you could get saved and then live however you want. Well, Paul deals with that individual in verses 7 to 13, the libertine. The person who says, I'm right with God, therefore I can live however I choose. And so in verses 7 to 13, he will give a defense of the law. Now, over and above the attitude of the legalist in the first six verses, over and above the attitude of the libertine in verses 7 to 13, when you come to verse 14, all the way through the end of the chapter, he deals with the attitude of the law-abiding Christian. And it is the law-abiding Christian who preserves the biblical balance. He recognizes the goodness of the law because the law is a reflection of what God is like. But he also recognizes the weakness of the law, not just in its inability to justify you, but in its inability to sanctify you. Because in the weakness of our fallen selves, we are incapable of keeping it. And so when we will come to Romans 8, he will say that the requirement of the law will be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So in verses 14 to 15, he will deal with the righteousness of the law. So to sum it up, the legalist fears the law, he is in bondage to it. The libertine hates the law, he repudiates it. But the law-abiding Christian loves the law and he obeys it in the power of the Spirit. So three principal divisions. One through six, the release of the law. We'll spend today, next time, God willing, 7 to 13 on the defense of the law, and then finally on the weakness of the law. And within these three paragraphs are described three different groups of people who are not only alive in Paul's day, but are alive in our day, and some are sitting right here this morning. So to address the legalist, first he gives a principle, then he gives an illustration of the principle, and then he applies the principle. So if you're using your note-taking outline there in your bulletin, first let's consider the principle of being released from the law. Now I want you to notice how verse 1 opens because he addresses these legalistic Christians as brethren, as brothers. Or do you not know brethren? Or you could say cistern. It's a generic word in the New Testament that refers to brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't you know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? So Paul's not mad at these folks, these true, genuine Christians. He wants to love them into the truth. And if you remember in chapter 6, in verse 3, he has already asked some questions, and he's going to do the same again in this chapter. In 6 and verse 3, he said, don't you know? the meaning of your spirit baptism and its implications. In chapter 6 and verse 16, he will say, don't you know that you become a slave of the one whom you obey? And once again, he's going to say, and do you not know, brethren? But it's a rhetorical question of sorts because he says, for I am speaking to those who know the law. He assumes they know. Now follow this carefully. Look again in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking of, to those who know the law. 
Now, what law is he referring to? He's not referring to the Old Testament Mosaic law. In fact, uh, the New American Standard so precisely translates with a small letter L, as does the King James and a number of other translations. When you see capital L, it's referring to Mosaic law. When you see small letter L, as in this verse, he's speaking to a law or to a principle of law. And that's clear in the original. Now understand, here's the challenge of the original. In the manuscripts that we have, they're either all lowercase letters or all uppercase letters in Greek. There's not capitals and lowercases mixed together. Now, if you buy a Greek New Testament today, you have that. But in the original, it's all uppercase or all lowercase. And so the translator needs to make a decision. And the decision is clear here because the article is not present. It's not the law. In fact, you could translate it, or do you not know, brethren, that I'm speaking to those who know law? In other words, Paul is speaking to those who know or understand law in general because he assumes that every Roman, every Greek, every Jewish man would understand the principle of law in general. Or do you not know, brethren, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Again, it's a rhetorical question because he says, in essence, I know that you know this truth about the law. You know it, don't you? Of course they do. You cannot take a corpse to court. You cannot find someone for a speeding or parking ticket if they've already died. You can't bring a dead person before a judge and a jury to be tried. No, the principle here is that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he lives. That's true in civil law, and as we will see, it's true in certain aspects of God's law as well. You understand that, right? If someone's in prison for stealing or for murder, they, uh, and, and, and he dies while he's in prison, what are they going to say? Case dismissed. It's over. It's, it's done with, all right? That's the principle of being released from the law. Secondly, there on your outline, I want us to think about the illustration of being released from the law. Not just the principle, but the illustration. And of all the illustrations that Paul could have used, I find it fascinating that God the Holy Spirit inspires him to use an illustration concerning marriage. Look now, if you will, at verse 2. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. What's so fascinating about this principle of law and this illustration of marriage, again, is he's speaking rhetorically. He's speaking with the belief that just as they understand the principle of law has jurisdiction over an individual just as long as he is alive, he's also speaking with the belief that a person intuitively knows that marriage is binding only as long as someone is alive. Now, as we've seen already in the book of Romans, there's an assumption that people who had never seen a Bible, who had never read the first verse of Scripture, intuitively knew something about the principle of law and how law functions and operates. Why? Because, as we saw in Romans 1, uh, within us God has given revelation. How so? Romans 2.15, he wrote the law of God on your hearts. And so Paul goes after the pagan Gentile, the man who's never, ever seen a Bible. And he says when they do what's right, their conscience affirms them. 
When they do what is wrong, their conscience spanks them. How do they know what's right and what's wrong? Because the law of God has been written into their hearts. Now it is true, the Bible teaches that a man can suppress that and fight against it and his conscience can become calloused. It can become seared as with a branding iron. And the worst state is when he gets what the Bible calls an evil conscience. An evil conscience calls good evil and evil good. And so Paul never chides a person for not knowing the law because he assumes they know it because God wrote it into their hearts. But he does condemn people for suppressing it, for twisting it, for denying it, for distorting it. So God is assuming that everyone anywhere understands that his principle was one man, one woman, until death separates them, that this is a binding contract. Now, someone might say, well, Paul obviously lived in a different day than we do. I mean, they obviously lived differently back then. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, the opposite is true. It was far worse, though we're catching up, it seems, very fast. Unlike the Lord Jesus that spoke to the permanence of marriage, many of the popular rabbis in that day taught that you could easily divorce a woman. And the point of debate was a verse that Moses penned in Deuteronomy 24 and verse 1. If we can bring it up, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Or some of your translations say some indecency in her. And so the point of debate was, what is this uncleanness? What is this indecency that was allowed because of the hardness of man's heart by which one could write a certificate of divorce? And many of the popular rabbis of the day took the Word of God and twisted the Word of God to make it say things it did not say. And so a very popular rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, said a woman could be unclean if she spoiled her husband's dinner or put too much salt in the food. Rabbi Akiba, another very popular rabbi, said that if a man found a woman that he thought was prettier than his wife, then his wife could become unclean. He could divorce her and go marry the one he thought was prettier. And the Roman view of marriage was just as corrupt, if not worse. Jerome, an ancient writer from the day, tells of one Roman woman who was on her 23rd husband and her husband on her, his 21st wife. Marriage in Romans' day was nothing more than legalized prostitution in many homes. So Paul says, listen, in spite of all that is done in your culture, I know that you know that a man and a woman belong to each other for life. He assumed that to be a self-evident truth. So please understand that when Paul speaks of one man and one woman until death severs the relationship, he is speaking a very radical thought in a culture in which that truth was spurned. Paul was using the illustration of marriage to reinforce that like marriage, which is intended to be binding until death, the law guides and directs men and women until their old spirit dies and the new spirit is joined with God's Holy Spirit, which then takes preeminence in the lives of believers. To hear today's message in its entirety, Download the Search the Scriptures app for Android and Apple devices or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 
787-747-7478. Do you have a question about the Bible or about living the Christian life? Why not ask Dr. Brogy? Tuesday mornings at 11 Eastern, Pastor Carl hosts a radio program titled The Bible Line. You can call in and have him answer your question. Just call 877-924-7980 for The Bible Line. And be sure to listen online at his church's radio station, wagp.net. Tomorrow we continue our look at being released from the law. Join us then as we search the scriptures.